I'm a little disheveled at the moment because my, uh, my dad wanted to get this mic working, so I ended up putting on a shirt that's one of his. <laughs> so uh, I want y'all to bear with the aesthetics over here, okay? But good morning. Uh, like I said, I'm honored to be here this morning. I'm so glad it's a 9 o'clock service because I like the fact that the crowd is not a lot of people right now. So this is, this is good for me. This is good for me, a good speed. I was supposed to actually minister uh, last week, but I was working 12-hour shifts. So my dad was like, nah, we take a break, come back next week. And it worked out because it actually gave me an opportunity to get here and polish the message a little bit more. Um, so that, that all kind of worked out. And if you know you've been at this ministry long enough, you kind of know what to expect from Door of Faith, right? You know what to expect on the pulpit on Sundays. And I have no desire to change that up. So what I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to give you a giant recap of what Pastor has been preaching on in the current series. It's the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, I know that we hear some things on Sundays when we hear. Sometimes they make sense, and then sometimes they just kind of go right over our head. But I want to try to help explain you know, explain some things in the best way that I can that makes it a little simple. Uh, so my topic for today is the super simple way to understand law and grace. The super simple way. So to help me understand it, I had to kind of break down some of the things that I learned in little categories. So I wanted to understand what are dispensations? What it, you know, why was it okay to follow things one way and then the next it changed? Secondly, I wanted to know who the dispensations targeted and why was it important for them to follow it the way that they were asked. Then I wanted to understand what was a covenant? What was a testament? Why do we have two? And then I want to know which one was for me to adopt. Now, by understanding these few things, it will start to make it easy to digest the things you hear at this ministry because we talk about it a lot, right? But it's a good thing to have perspective. And all I'm doing here is providing perspective. Now, on the flip side, I don't want you to ever shy away from asking questions like, why do we have, you know, baby dedications if the child has to choose for themselves when they're of age, right? Or is it a ceremony? Is it for show? Or religious purposes? Are there spiritual consequences if I don't do it? You know, is there an age limit for my child to be when it happens? If I miss that time frame, are there expectations or exceptions? I'm sorry. If they are, what are they? Is it backed up by scripture? Does a person leading the ceremony has to be a preacher for my church? Does that matter? Can I do it at home? Does the Bible say I can't? You know, if you tell me I'm not saved unless I have the evidence of speaking of tongues, does that cross out people that are born mute? I saw a lady on social media she had lost her whole bottom jaw, right, in an accident. How does she find salvation if it has to be with evidence speaking in tongues? Are there exceptions? Like, where can I find that in the Bible? Is baptism, is it mandatory for salvation? If so, what's the time frame? What if I die before I come to church next Sunday to do it? Is my soul lost for eternity? If so, why do I have to wait until your church does it? Can I do it at home? Does the type of water matter? If a person was a burn victim in a serious house fire, thought they were going to die, they want to be saved, they got to wait to be baptized? If God looks at the heart, why do we put so much religion and religious emphasis on everything else? So you don't ever want to shy away from the hard questions, even if you think they're dumb questions. 
and I ask a lot of dumb questions, and that's why I put this in this message. But I don't want you to ever be afraid to pursue wisdom, knowledge, and understanding when your soul is involved, because this is serious. So, I want you to learn how to rightly divide the word so you can understand spiritual concepts as you read it. It'll help from taking scriptures out of context. And the whole purpose is for us to take the word serious is because, like I said, it's life. We need the word to help us in our daily lives. But when we start applying scriptures that were intended for someone else, we end up waiting on God to do something that he either is not going to do or something that he's already done. So me, my dad, and my son, we all have the same name. It is what it is. Now, if the mailman comes with a bundle of mail, it's up to us to find out which one of it the mail belongs to. Now, if I open a letter and it's telling me that I can eat free at IHOP with a singer's discount, <laughs> safe to say that's not for me, right? I can still go to IHOP, throw the flyer on the table, but they're going to see my driver's license and they're going to say, sir, you don't qualify for the singer's meal. That's what happens when believers take the word out of context. We read a passage we like, we expect God to move like he did in that passage, but when he doesn't, we start to lose faith when it was actually misplaced to begin with. Because God is a promise keeper. If he said it, he'll do it. You just have to make sure you know exactly who his promises are to and where to find where you fit. Don't take someone else's mail, sing and shout about it, and then wonder why things aren't progressing and moving forward in your life. So, by a quick show of hands, I know it's not a lot of people here, which is awesome, but by a quick show of hands, how many people here are either lawyers or you're related to someone who is a lawyer? Anybody? Okay, perfect. How many people here just watch lawyer-based TV shows and court dramas? The rest of y'all. Okay, that's perfect. So this will make a little sense then. There's a show, a few shows that me and my wife have been watching over the past couple of years, and most recently we was uh, watching this show and it's called Suits. Now, this show was about a law firm who went hiring for some new lawyers and ended up finding a kid with no law degree. He had a photogenic memory. The thing is, he helped them solve cases. He helped them one. He impressed everybody at the firm. But nobody knew that he was a fraud. So he spent the, mo the first like, several seasons trying to keep a secret. He couldn't take promotions. He couldn't attend alumni events because he was stuck. Now, when this law firm went up against other powerful attorneys, they couldn't come to court unprepared. Too much was on the line. So this kid would use his photogenic memory to remember the details of the law, how they were broken, why the courts should dismiss charges of their client. Every detail mattered before the judge made his ruling. This kid helped them win a lot of cases. So they chose to keep him on board, even though knowing that themselves were breaking the law. They would weave and maneuver to keep his help, although they had to risk a lot of exposure and basically lie to everybody that they knew. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, he went to jail, okay? But like most shows like this, or most shows, uh, regardless of what the show that you're watching, one thing is consistent across the board. You have to know the law in order to operate within the confines of the law. Because the lawyer that doesn't know the law is a liability. So we come to church, and depending on what church you attend, we're either told to keep the law and the commandments, we're told to walk in grace. Which one should we be doing? How do we validate a doctrine when they all have similarities and differences? Especially if you're not used to being in church at all. How do you determine when you're hearing the truth preached if all of it is in the Bible? 
This is why I gave the example of the TV show. It wasn't random. But although this kid had a photogenic memory, there's still things that he had to learn in order to truly be effective in court. His amazing memory didn't help him with his personal relationships, his choices, or his decisions. So you can't just take the Bible, learn it from front to back, say you got it. Because it's not about how much you remember, how much you know, or how much you don't know. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit and the effect that it actually has on your life. And knowing the Bible front to back, it does nothing for God if your heart is filthy. The Bible that we know is made up of two halves, right? We have an Old Testament, and we have a New Testament. Now, we have an Old Covenant, a New Covenant, so forth, so on. But let's, let's see what we can see what these are. I did a little homework. So a testament is the first one I'm going to start with. A testament is a person's will, especially the part relating to personal property, right? I'm going to say it again. A person's will, especially relating to the personal property. If I pass away, my children are awarded my possessions and my property based off my testament will of who gets what. It's legally binding. Now, they can fight over this property, but the will has the last say. To have that property, they have to abide by that will or they forfeit all of it. If you ignore it completely, the judge then decides how to split your assets. So if a testament of will or instructions are left behind for the beneficiaries, what is the Old Testament and the New Testament when related to the Bible? What was left behind in the Old Testament? What was left behind in the New? Who are the beneficiaries of these testaments? I want y'all to chew on that. Now we're going to talk about a covenant. A covenant is a formal agreement or a promise usually included in a contract or a deed to do or not to do a particular act. Now, if I ask my wife's parents for their blessings to marry me, and then I go into covenant with her, our family, God, I'm making a promise to love her and each other until death do we part. That's a promise that I'm making in good faith. That's a covenant. Number one, God made a vocal covenant or a promise with Adam. Genesis 2:15 through 17 says, And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it, to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now people read that and think, well, God didn't enforce his end. Based on reading it, at face value, after Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he and Eve had sons, daughters. He lived his best life and moved as normal. But remember, God is a promise keeper. If he said it, he'll do it. Second Peter 3 and 8 says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. Why is this relevant? Because this scripture is in the back of the Bible. Second Peter is near the back of the Bible. So how is this scripture in the back of the Bible add context to what's happening in the beginning? Because Genesis 5, 5 says that Adam was only 930 years old when he died. So if a day with the Lord is a thousand years, Adam didn't make it. He died within the same day he disobeyed God. So God kept the end of his covenant. God made a covenant with Noah. 
But this covenant came with something tangible. So the first one was vocal. This one is tangible. Genesis 9, 11 through 17 says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off more by the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I do set my bow in the cloud. We're talking about a rainbow. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look up at it and I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the token of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh upon the earth. Now, what makes this covenant with Noah different than the one with Adam is the token. The token in this case is the rainbow, right? We learn about it as kids. You look up, you see it when the sky is rain. It's like, ah, there it is, right? Now, tokens are something tangible, but it's something you can see, you can touch, you can interact with. The covenant was established using a rainbow as a reminder of the covenant. Why is that important? God wouldn't make a promise and then forget that he made it. So why are the ones, we're actually the ones who need instant replay to remember who just dumped, right? I mean, we do. We forget stuff just like that. It's easy to be fearful when we see storms, both figuratively and literally. But it's the rainbow that embodies that promise. The rainbow has a deeper meaning than you think. I want y'all to chew on that, too. Number three, God made a covenant with Abraham. But this covenant wasn't just vocal and it wasn't just based off something tangible as they could see. This covenant was special because it had an inheritance clause. Genesis 17, four through eight. It says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall my name any more be called Abram. But thy name shall be Abraham for a father of many nations have I made thee and I will make thee exceeding fruitful and I will make the nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and thy generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee. That's a lot of these, ain't it? And the land wherein thou were a stranger, and that word stranger is so deep. It's a lot of little scriptures that I was trying to put together, but I can't do that today. I'm going to let Pastor do that, but that's a, stranger is a powerful word. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, with this covenant, Abraham was blessed to have future kings come from his bloodline. He was blessed beyond, beyond fruitful. Even after he was dead and gone, his children's children's children would be blessed. And the only reason we know the promised land as the land of Canaan as the promised land was because of the promise made to Abraham. Number four, God made a covenant with Moses in Exodus six. God gave Moses the law. Now, this is one of the more crucial covenants to understand. I'm going to go into this a little bit later because it sets up a different point that I want to make. But as a quick overview, God's people ended up in slavery to Egypt for about 400 years. God remembered his covenant 
to Abraham and that the land of Canaan was theirs to inherit. So he wanted to bring them out of bondage in Egypt and put them in the land that he promised to them through Abraham. But to close out this point real quick, there are more covenants that God has made throughout the Bible. There's covenants with David, you know, so on and so forth. But these are just a few that I had the time to explore for the service. But the goal is to get you to see how covenants were made and how much power a covenant has. Now, remember, a covenant is a formal agreement or a promise usually included in a contract or deed to do or not to do a particular act. And contract was an interesting word here in that definition. So I wanted to find out what is the definition of a contract? A contract is a written or spoken agreement that is intended to be enforceable by law. I'm going to say it again. It's a written or spoken agreement that is intended to be enforceable by law. If I go buy a car, whether I lease it or finance it, either way, the terms of what I can and can't do, how much I must pay monthly, and the, and the consequences on if I breach that is in the contract. So what do all these have in common? Contracts, covenants, wills, deeds, testaments. They're all binding between at least two people. They require, at the bare minimum, enough discipline to honor and abide by the agreements. They also come with consequences for failure or breach of that agreement. So when you look at the Bible, you have to know how to rightly divide the word. You can't take a scripture out of context and run with it. You have to learn who God is talking to and when, because context matters. So let's look at a contract, right? Like we said, it's a written contract, it's spoken or written agreement intended to be enforceable by law. General Motors signed a contract recently, and this happens every four years. Each contract has its terms, what the employees can and can't do, what we can and can't have, if our benefits increase or if they decrease. If we ratify or establish a contract in 2023, the previous contract holds no weight, just like in 2019 was binding and the one in 2015 had no weight. In the new contract, we get $8,000 for tuition assistance. The last contract, we only got 5,000. Now, if I fill out my tuition forms and limit myself to only 5,000, I'm leaving $3,000 on the table. Those are classes I can't take, classes that would have been free to me, but now I'm gonna pay $3,000 out of my pocket because I wanted to honor the terms of the old contract. And here's the thing, the contract ain't just about your will and your desire to honor it. It's also about the one who made the contract and their obligations to it. When a new contract is in place, both parties are bound to it. It's not about how you feel and it's not about what you think. If General Motors sign a contract and say that I can have 8,000 in tuition assistance, they can't go back and change their mind. That veers away from the contract obligations and that puts them in breach of the contract. Breaching agreements come with consequences because contracts are enforceable by law. It's not based on good faith or your word only. It's legally binding. Another aspect of this, presumably the most important, is recognize who the contract addresses. Using General Motors analogy, if it says temps and new hires get over 70% pay increase, is the contract obligated to pay permanent employees over 70%? No. Why? 
because that language in the contract was for someone else. A whole different group of people. Am I making sense? Are y'all following me? Okay. So let's talk about the covenant aspect of it. And I want to use a wedding ring, for example. And I'm not wearing mine today, but I have a lot of reasons why. So do not judge me. I broke my finger a while back. I can't wear my ring, so I got this little rubber one that I wear. And if it, it's, it, it is what it is. Anyway, what is a wedding ring for? Let's get back to it. What is a wedding ring for? Can you wear it if you're not married? Of course you can. But the ring on a married woman has a different meaning than someone who's not. The purpose of the ring is to show an outwardly a covenant that was made inwardly. It's a way to make a statement without speaking. It's how you show you're in a binding agreement with someone other than yourself. The ring, in this case, is a token. It's tangible. You can feel it. You can touch it. And when you see it, you're reminded of your covenant to your spouse. Just like when God saw the rainbow. He's reminded of his covenant with Noah. The Bible said the rainbow was a token of God's covenant. Now, although your wedding ring is an outward token of your covenant, the covenant isn't voided out because you chose not to wear it. In my case. If my wife does not wear her ring and she goes to the mall, she's still my wife. Her role in my life, her duties, her responsibilities are still the same. They still fall under the duties of the covenant of marriage. Much like a ring in the old covenant, God's people had ordinances. They had things that they could visually see, things they could point to, things they could feel. And I'm going to give you a few quick examples. Numbers 21, 8 through 9, there was a bronze snake on the pole that was built for hearing or for healing. And anyone that was bit by that snake in that time could look up at it and be healed. Leviticus 9, 2 through 6, talked about a calf that was sacrificed on the altar. Moses told the people the Lord commanded that they do it. And if they did that, he would appear. Exodus 28, Bible talks about the ephod, right? It was the jewels on the vest that was worn for the priest as they go before God. Ark of the Covenant, which housed the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, pot of manna. People literally died when they touched it because it made God angry. So you got to read 2 Samuel 6 when you find time because all of it is good. But in the New Covenant, we don't have the same requirements for the ordinances, the tokens, and the tangible items. Why? Because going back to our ring analogy, the ring is an outward proof of a covenant that my wife and I made to each other. But my children don't need a ring because they have my blood. Okay? My blood, my DNA, it's in my children. That's what binds us. They don't need a wedding ring or any other ordinances because they're not bound to me because of something tangible. They're not bound to me because of what they wear. They are bound to me because I am in them, and what's in them came from me. <laughs> when I see my children, I see myself. So I'm in them, they in me, literally. Like my blood is pumping through their veins right now. Even if my children wanted to wear a wedding ring, they can never operate in the role of the spouse. My connection to them is different. So the rules are different. I kiss my kids, but not the way I kiss my wife. I bless my kids, but not the same way I bless my wife. However, my wife could leave me, divorce me, and marry another man, God forbid. 
she can ask for forgiveness, and I can welcome her back. God forbid. <laughs> but my children will always be my children no matter what they do because they cannot escape my blood. <laughs> now, I have two daughters that my wife had before she met me. They don't have my blood, yet they still have the same rights, coverages, and protection and benefits as my two babies. Why is that? It's because they're still my children. They were not there in the beginning, but they were adopted in or born in spiritually to my family. So when you're born again or you're born into the spirit, it doesn't matter if you weren't previously a blood relative or not. You are now because God is spirit. So even if they were not flesh and blood, even if they were right now to go put on a wedding ring, they still end up in the position of my children. Them wearing a ring or a token to be anything to me is ridiculous. It's ridiculous because it's not necessary. But they would know that if they know who they were. So the whole concept of making a few mistakes and being thrown out of Christ is ridiculous because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ because you are his children. Now, most of us today, don't, we don't know who we are. So we put on a wedding ring, we dress up in makeup, we wear our mama's heels so we can feel closer to Jesus. And we were taught to basically mimic the relationship Israel had because that's what God wanted. And he did for his bride. You're his children. And the relationship is not the same. The covenant for you is supposed to be different. So do you want to spend the rest of your life preparing for a role that you were never supposed to play? Do you really want to live your life trying to hold God to a covenant that he never made with you? If you're trying to be his bride, you're not his child. He already has a bride. So if you dressed up like his wife and you're not his child, that would make you the other woman. But we ain't ready for that conversation. Some of the child chew on that and we're going to move on. But I want you to think about it in practical sense, though. As a married man, am I allowed to do whatever I want? Go wherever I want, hang out with whoever I want to hang out with? God forbid. Why? Because there's a level of respect that I have to have for my marriage, which leads to a level of obedience to my commitment or to my covenant. Israel had the law because Israel was the bride of Christ. But we are his children. We want what's best for our children, right? Our kids tend to do what they want, so we train them up in the way they ought to go, not the way that we feel they're obligated to go. They're children. They're not spouses. We, the children of the Most High, should have a standing level of respect for our Heavenly Father. We can't get divorced because we came home late. We're his children. We may get grounded. We may be chastised, but nothing can separate us from that love, right? I love my kids. Sometimes I can't stand my kids. And I'm pretty sure it's a lot of y'all in here that won't raise your hand, but you agree with me. Because y'all don't like y'all kids either, and I understand. But see, one thing about kids, there's a general and a basic understanding that we know that kids don't know how life works. So their choices are going to be poor. We know that my daughter can't balance a budget, and my son cannot drive a car. So their sense of danger is not there. Their comprehension to instructions are still developing. So as parents, we give our children grace. A spouse, now let my spouse come home at 4 a.m. smelling like whiskey and chicken fingers. I'm going to show her grace all right. 
the grace to be single. I'm not even looking over there because I can feel the heat. I can feel the heat through the lashes. But you see the difference between a relationship between a spouse and a child? If you see the high level of grace that you have, you start to understand it, how it flows for each position. Your overall relationship to God will improve when you realize your position as a child. The more you start to understand your role, the more you can understand and appreciate who Christ really is to you. And one of the first things that I said is you have to know who God is talking to and where do you fit. The bride had a role. Children have a role. The rules are going to be different. And again, that's by design. If you can understand it in the natural, you can make sense of it in the spiritual. You just need God to open your understanding so you can see with the right perspective. Now, the last point I want to share is what helped. I would say what kind of helped me with the most of my understanding with the law versus grace. Because we have a lot of messages at this church. Pick one. I promise you it's going to sound the same. But that's good because that's what you need. So I wanted to first establish the why. Why did God give the law to Moses in the first place? Well, here's a quick refresher in case this is new to you. Because I'm trying to be mindful of people who don't go to church on a regular basis. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors, this is where a lot of this started. It's a powerful story. His brothers were jealous, so they sold him into slavery. They lied to his parents and said that he was dead. In slavery, he found favor with the Pharaoh. He was promoted to a high position, and when famine arose, his family came looking for help. He invited them to stay with them. They had no idea that that was their son, Joseph. When he revealed himself, it's a beautiful moment. Birds are flying, soft music probably playing in the background. It was great. Fortunately, one day Joseph died, and a pharaoh arose who didn't know who Joseph was. And the respect that the old pharaoh had for Joseph and his people, the new one didn't have at all. They saw Israel as a threat. They saw Israel multiplying and turned them into slaves. Fast forward 400 years. God raised up Moses to free his people. So he made a covenant with Abraham that he was obligated to keep. So Moses obeyed God. And once the people were out of Egypt, they started to forget what God wanted them to do. So God gave Moses the law. He gave them commandments to live by. It was the obedience that God wanted. If they did not obey, it came with consequences. The law separated them from the unruly. The law is what differentiated God's people from the rest of the nations. The law served a purpose. The law was to keep order and to shape a culture of obedience to what God wanted. God didn't play about his commandments. If he asked you to do something, he expected obedience. If you disobeyed, you were grouped in the same category as the young believer. The consequences, bless you, the consequences were to root out the unbeliever. The law brought consequences to the ones who broke it. Why? Because the law was based on conditions. It was conditional. That's an important word. I want you to remember that. What can't, we can't be under the law because we can't be weeded out on who belongs to him and who doesn't. Because that's already been established or ratified. Like when referencing the contract, it's already been ratified, right? So in the new covenant, Christ fulfilled the law. We are now in Christ. His love for us is not based on conditions because we're his children. I hope I'm explaining this in a way that's easy to understand. Y'all with me? Okay. 
I'm going to break this down in the best ways possible. Now, if I'm wrong about anything, if I'm in error, I'm telling you right now, I welcome the feedback, right? I'm here to grow just as you are. Um, so I went over the word testaments, contracts, covenants, and now I want to talk about dispensations. What's a dispensation? Dispensation is a system of order, government or organization of a nation, community, etc., especially as existing at a particular time. Now, understanding dispensations will provide a lot of clarity to the word that you receive for at this ministry. But a lot, but just as a quick rundown, biblical dispensations were a period of time where your actions determined your right standing with God. In one time period, it was the first fruit offering. In another, it was the lamb sacrificing. Then it was the cutting of the male foreskin. Down the line, it was the form of baptism. Then you have the crucifixion, which was the final dispensation or the end of the law and the start of the age of grace. As churches, different denominations and groups, we all seem to focus on certain dispensations as the backbone of our ministry. For some churches, they wash feet. Some churches, they feel you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues. Some churches feel you're not saved unless you've been baptized in water. And it caused a lot of divide that prevents us all from coming together, right? But there are some people who feel that they're the original Hebrews of the Bible. They feel that they're God's chosen people. There's those who feel that God is for America and nowhere else. <laughs> it is what it is. There are some who feel that the white man wrote the Bible to keep blacks enslaved. There are some that love the Bible but automatically call you a false prophet if you try to explain any scriptures using another version. Because <clears throat> if it's not the King James, it's the devil. <clears throat> now, the more you look at the reasons of why we're so divided, it's because of the law. All these different denominations, and the word denominations mean to divide. And we brag, oh, what denomination are you? What type of division are you bringing? That's all it means, right? But the more you look at the reasons of why we're so divided, it's because of the law. It's our desire to want to please God without the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding of how to do it properly. We want to please God based off of what he said he wanted in scripture, but that's where we stop. We never stop to ask ourselves, was this contract for me? Am I reading a ratified contract in the new covenant or am I trying to uphold the old one? Romans 10 one through four, it says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal. Oh, thank you. That I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. To everyone that believeth. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evidence for the just shall live by faith. 
and the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus wasn't here to destroy the law. He was here to fulfill it. Nobody could keep the law. If you're going to try to keep the law, you're indebted to the whole law. Why would you want that kind of pressure when it only leads to death and failure? Jesus was the only one who was able to do it. Then he died. That's literally what the law said would happen. The law kills. It brings death. How do we know the law killed him? He was tried, convicted, sentenced. He wasn't murdered and he wasn't jumped for his wallet. He faced Pilate, Herod, and his own people called for his execution. That's the law. That's the system of the law. He took our place because it was supposed to be us. No one talks about the life Barabbas lived or the choices he made after finding out that Jesus took his place. But we kind of know because of the life that you live moving forward. Because that was us. He took our place. Right. Christ died. We were in his will or his testament. So what happens when you're a beneficiary and a will? You get what was promised. Thing is, we didn't just get the benefits of his will. He rose from the dead. So we get the best of both worlds. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that out of his side came blood and water. The Bible said he was the lamb that was slain. The Bible says he was sacrificed for our sins. So when you truly grasp the understanding of his sacrifice, you start to, you'll see that he took on a role that we needed in every different dispensation required to be made right with God. Every dispensation required a promise and a covenant. We had to do this, then I will do this. He fulfilled each and every single last one. All in one. <clears throat> That's what you get when you're in Christ. You get it all. So if somebody tells you that you need to keep the law, tell them you did. Christ did it already, and I'm in him. When the father sees me, he sees the blood of his son. When they tell you that they're God's original chosen people, let them know that we're not supposed to know you after the flesh. So in Christ, there's no Jew, Greek, bond, free, male, female. Status has no clout in Christ. No matter how rich you are, who you are. When they tell you, you got to be baptized in water, let them know I was. When Jesus died, out of his side, poured blood and water. I'm covered in them both. All right? Now, if you want to go do it, you can go do it. Right? Nobody said you can't do it. I know Pastor be fussing at you. But if you want to do it, go do it. Just know that it does not put you into Christ. That's what you have to accept. <clears throat> when they tell you that you have to keep the Sabbath day, tell them you do. Because the Bible said that Christ was the Sabbath. And he's in me. And I'm in him. So if you choose to observe it, you can do it. But just know it doesn't put you in Christ. When they tell you you're going to be judged for your works, tell them there's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And I'm in Christ Jesus. Amen. Following the law of Moses 
after it's been fulfilled by Christ is a dangerous thing. Because you're basically saying that although Christ is the finished work, you still got to keep on doing what made you righteous before the blood of Christ. You're saying that although being in Christ is the only way to be made righteous, you still got to do everything else. And here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you're walking in the law fulfilled. God sees you. He sees his son. There's no condemnation in Christ. So if you're not in Christ, then you're still under the law. And if you're under the law, you're under a system that already served its purpose and it has no further benefits. That's like being in the race. Your team crossed the finish line, but you still grab the torch and run more laps. <laughs> There's no finish line past the finish line. Once the race has been finished, we have a winner. It's that simple. There's no further score being counted. Nor is there an award for anything that you do after the race is over and finished. So why are you running a race that you were already accredited the victory for winning? I guess you just want to keep on running. Thing is, you maybe, maybe you think, maybe God is in the stands looking at me, right? Proud that I decided to keep going. Or is he looking at his son in whom he's well pleased? A son who already crossed the finish line. Because everyone in Christ is an heir and a joint heir of that gold medal. Everyone in grace is given the reward for a race completed. Then there's you. The lights off, everybody went home, and you just running laps in the dark. No destination, no reward at the end, no end in sight, no finish line. You're just going to burn yourself out trying to win a race that was already won. They do this because they won't accept the free gift. You don't, you don't want to participate in the gold medal. You want the credit for the work you've put in because it's about you. You want credit for the miles you ran. The main people who boast about why it's so important to keep the law, they're the ones who won't keep the law of love. They seem to make excuses on why they can't love their neighbor. Why won't you pray for me if you see me in error? Why put me down instead of offering to help me? Why tear me down instead of building me up? Why is it so hard for you to love me? But you know, you keep the law, right? You can't pick and choose, because if you keep part of the law, you are indebted to all of the law. And no matter how much you keep, it won't make you righteous. Now the same Bible you read tells me that if you can't love, the love of the Father is not in you. The same Bible you read tells me that if you love your neighbor, it's as if you kept the whole law. But you can't do that either, right? Because you prefer to have the moral high ground while not realizing that you're more of a Pharisee than a child of God. The race wasn't given to the swift, nor to the strong, but to the one who endures to the end. Christ endured the cross. That's scripture. He crossed the finish line. He made all of us heirs, joint heirs of his victory. He gave us the gold medal, and all we have to do is accept it. You don't work for a free gift because the moment you work for it's no longer a gift, it's compensation. We don't have to go run for it because it's already been done. All of God's people, the prophets, the children of Israel, they all ran the race. They all took part in the running all the way up until Jesus came. And then he took the torch from them and he literally finished the race, right? now. Anybody that comes after him, we don't need to pass a torch to anybody. We ain't even got to take the torch because he won the race, right? We're all victors now. 
So don't be that person who's running in an empty stadium thinking it counts for something. When you focus on keeping the law of Moses, you turn your back on the fulfillment of Christ. If you think the law will make you right with God, then Jesus died for nothing. So either he's right or you are. And the Bible that I'm reading tells me that let God be true and every man be a liar. Hey, my time is up and I appreciate yours.